Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles out now if you would open them to Revelation chapter 14. And if you'd find that text rather quickly this evening, we're, we're not going to do the customary opening remarks as I usually do before I preach. The subject tonight is the beatitude of death. Beatitude means blessing. And that may seem like a strange word combination to put blessing and death in the same sentence. And some of you may, might even think that that is an oxymoron. But that's the terminology that the Bible uses, the beatitude of death. That's the wording that we find in Scripture, death is a blessing. So if you found that Scripture, Revelation 14, if you stand with me, please, as we read God's Word, we're going to look at uh, verses 12 and 13 of this 14th chapter. Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Heavenly Father, thank you for another opportunity to open your word tonight. And I just ask you, Lord, that you would bless us as we study this evening and help us to learn something from this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Does anybody think it's warm in here? Okay, all of us just about. That's a clue to somebody out there. Uh, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. As most of you know, I have been a Christian almost my entire life. I wasn't born a Christian. Um, Contrary to the belief of many people, Christianity is not something that you inherit. Uh, You don't become a Christian by natural birth. You have to be born again. But I was born into a Christian family, and of course my dad was a preacher, and by the grace of God, he took me to church as uh, every single service, whenever the doors of the church were open, we were going to be there. And at a very young age, I came to know Christ as my Savior. My dad was a preacher who not only thought that we ought to come to all the church services, but he also believed we ought to be at all church activities. And to him, that meant we went to all of the funerals as well. Now, as I've told you before, I have probably been to more funerals than anybody in this church and probably more than most people that you would ever meet. And so I've heard this text used over and over again many, many times, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. That's very familiar to me. I've heard it many, many times in funerals, and of course, I've used that myself. But as I mentioned last week, the context of this passage is for those who live in a very different age from the time that we're living in now. Uh, Chapter 14 in Revelation is speaking about the time of tribulation. And there's a contrast that we have in these verses. Uh, A contrast is provided here between those who follow the wicked Antichrist and the way that they die as compared to those who know the Lord and remain faithful to him and what their deaths will be like. And that contrast is provided for us in verses 9 through 11 of this chapter. And there it tells us that those who receive the mark of the beast will uh, die and they will go forever into the fires of hell. They'll be tormented forever. And on the other hand, it says that those who are redeemed and who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will die, but they will wake up in the presence of God forever. And so the context that we're reading here is the time of tribulation. But it's no less true that those who die in the Lord in any age are truly blessed because they are going to be in the presence of God. 
And that's why we find this verse is used so many times in funerals. It's not really a deliberate attempt to take the, ver- take the verses out of context, but it is to give hope to people who otherwise might dread the time that they die. Now, I want to just briefly review a little bit from last week. Uh, we talked about how that the fear of death is something that's natural for all of us. And we talked, first of all, about the sting of death. Death is a crushing blow. It symbolizes defeat, and so we struggle against death. That's the natural instinct of every person. It doesn't make any difference whether you're saved or you're lost. You're not going to meet too many people who actually do want to die. Now, that's uh, the reason why that I don't go stand out in the middle of the street here in front of the church. I don't really want to die. I remember about a year or so ago, there was a person who wrote me a letter uh, expressing fear of death. And this person asked me, he was a Christian, and he asked me if it was wrong for a person who is a Christian to have a fear of death. Does that mean that there's something wrong with you? Is, uh, Is your salvation in question if you do have a fear of death? And I replied to him that it's not unnatural and neither is it unspiritual for a person to fear death. And as I said, that's the very reason why I don't go out there and stand in the middle of the street. I simply don't want to die. That's a natural instinct of all of us. But there is very much a difference between a person who knows the Lord when it comes time to die and a person who doesn't know the Lord. And that is that we have hope in our death. That's the thing that changes for a person. So you may fear death in one sense of the word, but there's a great change in you uh, when you become a, a believer in Christ because then you have hope. Paul wrote that we should not sorrow at uh, at death as those who have no hope. Uh, A person who doesn't know Christ will fear it because he really doesn't have hope. And if he does have hope, it's not a sure hope. And it's a hope, really, that's uh, a, a deceptive hope. Because as we've already said, that person without Christ will die and go into the fires of hell. And it's one of the reasons why I really do not like a theology that tells people that you can't know that you're going to go to heaven until you die. That is a belief or really a theology of no hope. And I don't want any part of that. And really we find here in these very scriptures that we're reading tonight that that attitude, that that thought is actually disputed in these very verses. I'm not going to be able to get to that part tonight. Uh, We'll do that in the next message on this. But Christians should not fear death as if they have no hope, because we do have this sure promise from God that death is a blessing. Death has a sting, which the Word of God describes as sin, and when you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the stinger of death has been taken out, and that's because Christ has taken care of all of your sins. So death is not really defeat for a Christian. Death is really moving a Christian from one phase of his eternal life into another phase. Well, I want to move on from that particular part of this to consider some more thoughts on this passage. And we are going to talk about death. Uh, Two whole sermons on death might seem to you be a little bit morbid, perhaps. And we do have a third one on death, so we're going to get down into it a little bit more. But if you're a Christian, I don't really think that talking about this is a morbid subject because I think that you probably want to know more about it. You want to know what happens after death, and the more that you learn about it, then the more that you'll have confidence that when you do die, that it's not something that you should fear and it is a blessing. So let's look secondly tonight at the security of deliverance. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Contained in that statement is a warning to the lost. 
There is no blessing and death for those who are lost. And verses 9 through 11 of the chapter very clearly tell us that. Death plunges a person into the awful torment of hell. And I explained when we studied those verses that the body of a Christian and the, a person's soul is not annihilated if he doesn't, uh, non-Christian I should say, uh, the death of a non-Christian, his, his body uh, is not annihilated, the soul is not annihilated, but he goes into this place of awful torment that call, that's called hell and there is no end to the suffering in that place. But for the Christian, there's this sure hope of deliverance from hell because we know that Christ has paid the full penalty of our sins. There is no cause for condemnation. Uh, there's no just reason why God should punish us. And so by death, uh, Christ's death on the cross and the payment of that penalty, we know that we're not going to have to suffer any time after this life. And that's good for us to know. But knowing that alone... Uh, does not guarantee that death would really not be anything other than annihilation for a Christian. Now, how do we know then that we are uh, delivered from something to something? Has Christ just delivered us from sin? Uh, I'm not really all that excited about this, but uh, uh, Bob's trying to inject a little bit of uh, a little extra oomph in there about the message, I think. But what, it, but what is it? Uh, it's Christ just delivered us from sin so that when we do die, that we pass out of existence? Or has he promised that there is something else? Well, we do know this, that by the resurrection of Christ, there is that hope that there is going to be something after death. That is a guarantee that every Christian has. And the resurrection is a demonstration of this life that we're going to enjoy. So blessed are the dead which die in the Lord Uh, is true because there is that blessing of the resurrection and Christ demonstrated that we would have deliverance from the full full penalty of sin and that spiritual death and physical death are both uh, guaranteed to us by the resurrection. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you find there that the uh, subject of that entire chapter is about life after death, about the resurrection, and that's the Bible's most extensive treatment of the subject. But there are two very special aspects of the hope that we have in Christ about death. And there are two very important topics that I think that we need to consider that will bring comfort to our hearts when we begin to think about this this whole thing of death and whether we should really have an inordinate fear of death as a Christian. The first thing that I think that we need to recognize is the Bible teaches us that death is sleep and not sorrow. Now, it's not really my favorite thing to preach funerals. And the death of a lost person is really very difficult because you know that the family does want to be comforted. And preachers are very sensitive to that. that. I mean, they understand that when you preach a funeral sermon that, that people are sorrowing and they do want to have some comfort. And so some preachers in the uh, death of a lost person, they'll try to say some nice things and they'll try to sweeten up death and in so doing, they give people false hope. And so they'll begin to talk about the good things that a person did in their life and dwell on that. And it leaves the impression that there is some mitigation of that person's condition simply because they lived a, a fairly moral life or did some decent things while they were in this life. But the truth is that for a person who doesn't know Christ, death is genuinely true sorrow. And it's also sorrow for uh, those that are left behind knowing that that loved, pers- uh, loved one did not know the Lord. They weren't saved. Now, there's no way that you can actually sweeten the eternity of hell. You just can't find nice things to say about that. 
And I really do believe that that's why all of us, or, or you that may have lost loved ones, you need to be very concerned about them. You need to keep witnessing to them, and you need to keep praying about them. And if they've turned you off, as many family members sometimes do, they get tired of listening to the story over and over again, so they just turn you off. Well, if you can't reach them by speaking to them, make sure that you do this. Make sure that you live a good Christian life in front of them all the time. And the Lord can sometimes take that and he can speak to that person's heart and turn them around. And it really saddens me that there are so many Christians that have lost loved ones and sometimes those lost ones are living right there in their home. But I've also noticed this, that many times uh, Christians who say that they have a desire to see their loved one saved, and they have that lost person who is living in the home, that a lot of times they won't live the life that they should in front of them. And so they'll, they'll miss church a lot, and they'll complain about the pastor and say bad things about him. They'll talk about other members of the church. And the only thing that that lost person ever hears about Christianity is all the bad side and everything bad there is in being a Christian. I remember there was a family that used to attend here, and they had a relative that was on the prayer page. Week after week, this person was on our prayer page. Even for years, uh, that person's name was there. And this family got mad about something, and they left the church. And the report that came back to me that that lost person that was living in that home, they had, they, had, they had heard so many bad things about the church over the years, and then they saw these others get mad and leave the church, that the word that came back to me was that lost person said, I told you so. You see, life and death are not matters of complacency. This whole thing is real. And it makes a difference how you live in front of people that are lost. And you need to live the right kind of life. You simply cannot sweeten death for a person who doesn't know the Lord. So I don't like to preach funerals. Uh, that's not my favorite thing to do, and when, uh, especially a lost person. And when I do, I usually consider that as an opportunity to reach other lost people that may be there. You don't want to see people die and go to hell. But when the Bible talks about death for a saved person, it uses very different terminology. Death is not a monster that's to be dreaded. In fact, the Bible speaks about the death of a Christian as being just like falling asleep. I used a quotation from Paul just a moment ago. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now there Paul is speaking of the coming of Christ and People were wondering at that time, what's going to happen to all of the dead bodies of Christians? And Paul said that when Christ comes, he's going to raise those bodies. But do you notice here how he refers to the body? He says that they are asleep. Now, I'll explain to you in just a few minutes what he doesn't mean by that. But one thing for sure is that death is not pictured here as some kind of a gut-wrenching, writhing, awful experience that we go through. He calls it sleep. How many times have you been to a funeral and you've heard people look at a person that's lying in the casket and they'll say, oh, he's so peaceful. It looks like he is asleep. Sometimes you'll hear this said about children. So the only time that kid is good is when he's asleep. And sometimes you'll go in and you'll check on your children after they've fallen asleep. And you see how peaceful they are. And you say, oh, isn't that so sweet? That little child looks just like an angel. 
And the idea that we get from that is that sleep is something good. We don't dread sleep. I mean, how many times have you said, I'm just so tired. All I want to do is I want to go to sleep. And I know that some of you think that sleep is really good because you can't wait till you get here. And when I start preaching, you just automatically nod off and you can get some sleep. And then as I grow older, I think about this. You know, my wife and I are really exciting people. We love to go to sleep. And my wife is a champion sleeper. She really is. If I didn't wake her up 24 hours a day, she'd be in the bed. Uh, but she loves to sleep. And we're people that live strictly by the Bible. We really are. I mean, we, we believe what the Bible says. Psalm 127:2 says, It's vain for you to rise up early. And she believes that. But it says, it, it's, vain, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. And so the Bible is always talking about sleep in glowing terms. It's a good thing for us. So we don't dread sleep. And that's why the Bible says that death is like sleep for a Christian. And it calls uh, our, our death in Christ rest rather than work. And that's why Paul didn't say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which are having their teeth pulled in Jesus will God bring with him. No, the Bible uses that word sleep because we know that that's good and it's not bad. And you may remember that in John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, that Jesus had some things to say about him. Now, remember, Lazarus had become sick, and Jesus heard that news that he was sick, and rather than going and healing him right away, Jesus decided to wait. And so by the time that he got there, Lazarus was dead. And in John chapter 11... We read here, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. So the disciples said, Well, if he's sleeping, he does well. And that was true. But they didn't really know the double entendre, the statement that they made, because he would do well. Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. Now, he was asleep, Jesus said. He was actually dead, but he was going to wake up from that death. Now, let me give you some other scriptures very quickly. I'll just read these and give you some idea of how the Bible compares death to sleep. In Matthew chapter 9, verse number 18, it says, While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. Then verse 23, And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Then in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, in speaking of the death of Stephen, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then we look at Paul's description of the resurrection of Christ, and he's telling the people how that there were many witnesses to Christ's resurrection. And at the time he wrote this particular scripture that we're going to read next, there were many witnesses that were alive that had actually seen that Jesus had arisen from the dead. But then he says something about those that had already died. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, he says, After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. 
And then he goes on to talk about Christ rising from the dead. And he says, if Christ did not arise from the dead, he says, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So we see over and over again, the Bible is using that metaphor of sleep when it talks about death. And so for a Christian, death is not something to be dreaded. You see, when you go to sleep, you naturally assume that you're going to wake up. And if the Bible just stopped at saying, well, they're dead, that really wouldn't convey the idea that there's any hope in it. So it says sleep. And as Psalm 127 says, sleep is a good thing. And then the idea of death being sleep is conveyed in our word cemetery. Cemetery actually uh, comes from a Greek word that's actually a word that originally referred to the catacombs where Christians buried their dead. They called that a sleeping place. And that's what the word cemetery means. It means a sleeping place. And I want to tell you something now that maybe perhaps it's not going to be too popular, but I think I would be remiss if I did mention this to you, that um, Christians, the early Christians, were very sensitive about the way that they buried their dead. Uh, How they buried their dead taught something about what they believed. Now, I said a moment ago that the word cemetery is actually a Christian word. I mean, we wouldn't even have that word if it weren't for Christians. And it is a sleeping place. And so Christians were very careful about how they buried the dead in order to convey the idea that they were actually sleeping. You can go to Rome today, and you can go there and visit the catacombs. And that's where Christians went underground, and they dug out these huge rooms for burial places. And they would take the bodies of dead Christians down into those catacombs, and they would very carefully lay them away, like putting the body to rest as if it was asleep. And that's because they believed God's promise that when Christ came back, he was going to raise that dead body. And so Christians would never destroy a body because that conveyed the wrong belief. Now, pagans would, would uh, burn bodies, and that was because they thought that death was the end of the body. And so they would burn the bodies because they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And when Paul was speaking about this very issue in 1 Corinthians, he was also making a point against Greek philosophy that said that the material body was no good, that the body itself was inherently sinful, and so the body would be annihilated. But as we read the scriptures, we we see that God created man from the dust of the earth, and the Bible says that God's creation was good. And so the Bible is not, or, or the body, I should say, is not materially evil. I mean, just because you have a material body does not mean that, it, that it's evil. And so God was very concerned about the body. And so he promises that he will also raise the body. And so Christians would keep bodies to show the belief that they would be raised from the dead or that they would be raised from sleep. So we have that picture over and over again throughout the scriptures that death for a Christian is not sorrow. Death is not something to be dreaded. It's not to be feared as if there is no hope. But death is blessed for a Christian, and it's like sleep. Only it's a whole lot better than sleep, really, because when you wake up, you don't wake up to the same old world. You don't wake up to all the trials and the tribulations that are here. You're not back in this old world again. You don't wake up to all the corruption and the heartache that we experience in life. But rather, when you wake up from death, being a Christian, you come into a new world, and you come into the very presence of God with hope fulfilled and joy eternal. And that's why preachers take these verses and they use them at a funeral 
at a memorial service, whatever. They use that for the death of a Christian because death is a blessing. There is no sorrow in death. It's just like sleeping uh, for a believer. Now, along those same lines, we do need to consider another truth that, that also brings great comfort to those who are the people of God. And that's because the Bible teaches that in our deaths that we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. And I get this question a lot of time about a lot of times about death. Uh, many Christians do understand what you're talking about here about death being like sleep, but they want to know how long do we sleep? How long does it take for us to get to heaven? I mean, after you die, how long is it before you actually go into heaven? And so there are people that understand the metaphor of sleep, but they try to carry that just a little bit too far. And they know that there are a lot of people who sleep for a long time. And, uh, and so they think, well, uh, that must be like death. It's like it's going to last a long, long time before we wake up. But the Bible always teaches the immediacy of our presence with the Lord. Now, Paul was one who... Uh, struggled with his desire to be with the Lord and there fulfill his greatest hope to be with the Lord. And he struggled with that as opposed to whether he would remain upon the earth and keep witnessing so that others could be saved and then go to heaven too. And so he said in Philippians, uh, that great passage that we studied just a few uh, months ago, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And then when he was writing to the Corinthians, he followed that up. And he said that as long as we're living in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But then we notice what he says after that in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And the Bible never gives an indication that when we go to, uh, that when we die, and that we, when we sleep at death, that we, our soul actually sleeps. That there's a time period between uh, leaving this life and being in the presence of God. There isn't a waiting period. There is no intermediate stage that you go through when you die before you get into heaven. Now, one of the greatest examples of this we have uh, is of the a thief on the cross. Uh, he declared his faith in Christ, and he knew that in a very short time that uh, he would die. And so Jesus gave the greatest comfort that he could give to a dying man. In Luke chapter 23, it says, And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus had the power of that man's life in his hands. In a few short hours, that thief would die. The Roman soldiers would come along, and they would break their legs, break his legs, and that would, that would hasten his death. And then he would die, and he would go to sleep. But right here, the Word says that he would wake up at that very moment in paradise with Jesus. Now, I'm sure that you are aware that there are many people who don't believe that. There are many erroneous doctrines that are taught concerning it. For instance, Roman Catholicism teaches that all of the sins of man were not paid for on the cross. And so when you die, you can't immediately go into heaven. First, you have to have a stopping place. You have to go to purgatory, and there you're going to be purged, 
purified from your sins. And so they believe that the death of Christ was not sufficient payment for all of our sins. And so when you die, you're going to have to suffer for sin too. And your suffering is going to help pay for some of those sins for however long that it might take. You'll help pay for your own sin, and then you can get into heaven. Now, the thing about it is, they can't tell you exactly how long that's going to take, but they can help you out with it a little bit. And that is, if your relatives and your friends will pay so much money to the church, then they'll help get you out of purgatory. And they tell you that, you know, if you'll light a few candles and you'll say some prayers to the saints and and the saints will make intercession for you, then someday you'll be able to get out of purgatory, then you can get into heaven. Now, folks, there never was a more blasphemous doctrine taught than that. There is nothing as degrading to the sacrifice of Christ than to say that you can actually do the same thing that Christ did. That you can pay for sins as well as Christ paid for sin. You see, nothing destroys the grace of God like the doctrine of purgatory. So never would the Scripture say this to us, that death is a blessing if we knew this, that when we go to sleep, we're going to wake up in a far worse place. That's not going to be a blessing. So the Bible doesn't talk about it in those terms. Now, those who teach purgatory are going to wish that it was true. Someday they'll wish that it was true because then they would have some way of getting out of the place. But the fact of the matter is, they're not going to be going to purgatory. They're going to go to hell. And when they go to hell, they'll stay there forever with no hope of ever getting out of the place. So everlasting fires of hell. The Word of God says right in this chapter that we're reading that the torment, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And that's what happens when you don't trust Christ fully and completely for your salvation. If you don't believe that Jesus paid it all, all to him you owe, if you don't believe that sin had left a crimson stain and that Christ washed it white as snow, and if you do believe that you can do something to help save yourself, then you won't be saved, and death will be sorrow. In fact, it's going to be the worst of all sorrows. So the soul doesn't sleep when it dies. The body will wait until the time of the resurrection. But the soul of every believer goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. And so there's not one word in all of the scriptures that teaches that there is a a, a delay in the security of our deliverance. Death is blessed because we close our eyes, and in a split second, just like that, we are in the presence of the Lord. Now, remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus? In Luke chapter 16, verse 22, it says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, actually there you can see immediacy. Uh, Lazarus died, and it says that the angels took him into Abraham's bosom. And that's the same thing as paradise, which is really the same as heaven. How long did that take? Well, you figure out how fast an angel is, and then you'll have the answer to your question. And I think that it's really uh, sort of akin to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the translation of a living believer. He says that happens when Christ comes back, his translation, the change that takes place in order uh, to enable him to go to heaven, and that coming into heaven, he says, is like the twinkling of an eye. And I think that is an apt description of what happens to a Christian when you die, that in the twinkling of an eye, you are in the presence of the Lord. Now, I want to give you just one more piece of information, and I'm not going to spend much time on this right now. If you're interested more in this, then what I would encourage you to do is go back and and, uh, review our series in Ephesians chapter, uh, especially chapter 4. And this concerns the idea 
that believers didn't always immediately go to heaven. Now, they do now, but they didn't always immediately go to heaven. There are some who teach that when Christ died, uh, before Christ died, I should say, that believers were kept in a compartment of Hades that was called Abraham's bosom. And they stayed there until such time as the actual atonement was made by Christ. And so they say that when Christ died on the cross, he was put into the tomb, and then he descended into Hades. And during that three days of entombment, he declared that atonement had been made, and then he delivered all of those souls into heaven. And so they think that uh, the Old Testament patriarchs, everyone that died before the time of Christ, had to wait until the actual sacrifice was made before they could get into heaven. And, and so that would mean then that you take somebody like Adam, Adam had to wait actually 4,000 years to be able to go into heaven. Now, here's something that um, Adam Clark wrote in his commentary. Now, l let me just back up for a moment before I read this, that Roman Catholicism have actually used that doctrine that I'm just talking about, that Christ ascended into hell to deliver the Old Testament patriarchs, that they've actually used that doctrine as the, as the basis for purgatory. Now, they put a different twist to it, but the, the idea comes out that it's never been a time, never has there been a time, and there is still not today, that any believer goes immediately into heaven. But Adam Clark wrote this in his commentary. He said, There is no ground to believe that the text speaks of Christ going to hell to preach the gospel to the damned, or of his going to some feigned place where the souls of the patriarchs were detained to whom he preached and whom he delivered from that place and took with him to paradise, which the Romish church holds as an article of the faith. John Gill wrote, By Abraham's bosom is meant heaven, a phrase well known to the Jews, by which they commonly express the happiness of the future state. And then he commented on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, and you might want to look that up a little bit later, but it relates to this. He says, Others, as the papists, imagine the sense to be that Christ at his death went in his human soul into a place they call Limbus Patrum, which they suppose is meant by the prison here, and delivered the souls of the Old Testament saints and patriarchs from thence and carried them with him to heaven. But this sense is also false, because as before observed, not the human soul of Christ, but his divine nature is designed by the Spirit. Nor is there any such place as here feigned in which the souls of Old Testament saints were before the death of Christ. For they were in peace and rest and in the kingdom of heaven, in Abraham's bosom, inheriting the promises and not in a prison. Now, I quoted that to show you, and I'm bringing this up to show you that the plan of God has always been the same for all of God's people. And that is when they die, they would immediately go into the presence of God. When that first man died, who knows who the first man that died? Quickly. Abel. Abel. You know, some people say, the first man that died, well, the first man was Adam. He's the first man that died. It took 900 years or more for Adam to die. Abel was the first person who died. And when Abel died, his body went into the dust of the earth to await the resurrection. But I promise you that when Abel died, he went immediately into the presence of the Lord. He was there at the moment that he closed his eyes in death. And it's the same for all the Old Testament patriarchs. Adam, uh, when Adam died, when Noah died, when Moses died, when David died, when Isaiah died, when Jeremiah died, and Daniel and Amos and Hosea and Joel and Amos, when all of those great men died, 
they went immediately into the presence of the Lord. And then as we come into the New Testament period, when John the Baptist died, when that thief on the cross died, when the Apostle Paul died, it was exactly the same for them. And it's going to be the same for you if you are a believer in Christ. You're going to leave the body, absent from the body, and present with the Lord. Now, that is just a wonderful promise, isn't it? Why, why would we fear death? Or in an inordinate way, I should say. We have the instinct of survival, of course. But why would we dread death as something that we just terribly fear as if we have no hope? The Bible has given that great promise. We wake up immediately with Jesus. And why is that? Because the sting of death is gone. Christ has paid for all of our sins. Now, what is the security of, of our deliverance? Is that there's nothing else to be done. There's nothing to wait on. <laughs> you won't go to purgatory to do anything there. Christ has already done everything for you. And so death is not sorrow. It's like sleep. So you go to sleep, you die, and quicker than a flash, just like a bolt of lightning, you're in heaven. Now, if that weren't true, then the scriptures would not say, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Now, as I said, I'm not particularly happy about preaching funerals, but if it's for a Christian, I can always come back to this, this beatitude of death, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. And so, just like we did on Saturday, when we have a saint that's promoted to glory, like Les Crandall was, uh, we don't have to sorrow in that. We can rejoice in it. And we thank the Lord for that, for the great promise that we have, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. And what a great blessing that this is to know that uh, you love us, you've taken care of all of our sins, you haven't left anything for us to do. And so when we die, you take us right into your presence. Lord, that's great hope for us to look forward to. I pray that every person in this room tonight might have that assurance. And Lord, if there's someone who doesn't have it, you would speak to their hearts and show them the great blessing of knowing Christ as Savior and the hope that we have when we die. Bless as we sing tonight and we give you the praise, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. <laughs>